Welcome to Radioactive Magazine. We will be talking with Richard Ned LeBeau, Professor Emeritus of International Political Theory in the Department of War Studies, King's College, London, and James O. Friedman, Presidential Professor Emeritus at Dartmouth. He is also an honorary fellow of Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. He has taught strategy at the National and Naval War Colleges and served as a scholar in residence in the Central Intelligence Agency during the Carter administration. He was born in 1941 in France under Nazi occupation and is the only member of his family who <coughs> survived World War II. He was adopted by an American family and grew up in New York City. He has written dozens of books, including three currently under review for publication, one of which is a novel, in addition to hundreds of journal articles. I'm Spencer Graves. Doug Samuelson and I will invite Professor LeBeau to summarize for us the most important things he thinks KKFI listeners should know about political science and national defense, and more specifically, including the concept of deterrence. In your most recent book, which I've seen in draft, I recognize it's not out yet, right. you uh, make quite a point of the role that the Munich Agreement in 1938 has played as a metaphor that hawks use to denounce anything they see appeasement in more recent events. Initially, the so-called Munich lesson was coined by Winston Churchill uh, to help ease from power Neville Chamberlain. Uh, after the war, Churchill mobilized the lesson again with Truman's tacit support to win American backing for opposing the Soviet Union in Europe. Since the Cold War, increasingly this Munich analogy has become a tool of right-wing uh, hawks um, opposed to caution by either Republican or Democratic presidents. The use of force creates considerable blowback. Uh, and that blowback may be detrimental to the very reasons for which you've used the force to begin with. Uh, to take a more dramatic and better documented example is the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq. Uh, for <laughs> whatever goals were sought, and in retrospect, it appears to be uh, locking in American hegemony, making Palestinians, North Koreans, and Iranians more pliant, uh, increasing U.S. influence in the region. In every respect, it did the reverse. You could take another example of somebody famously using that quote, Douglas MacArthur, the only thing that Chinese understand is the use of force and being strong. So he marched <laughs> right. his troops up almost to the yellow with catastrophic consequences. Having been warned by Washington not to do that. we had Well, Washington, Washington didn't know, what, in fact, what he was doing. There's a famous story that Dick Neustadt tells in his book on presidential power, um, told to him, I think, by Omar Bradley, that um, he and Truman gathered around 
a large globe trying to figure out where American forces were in Korea because MacArthur wouldn't tell them. <laughs> well, MacArthur certainly uh, is, is justly famous or infamous for coming back to the U.S. after having been relieved of command by Truman and making a speech to Congress uh-huh. in which the most the uh, central point was, in war, there is no substitute for victory. MacArthur completely misses the point. Let's go back to Karl von Clausewitz, the great Prussian theorist of war, right. Right. who rightly argued war is an extension of politics by other means. Right. You seek political goals, you use force to bend or break the will of an adversary. The use of force has to be carefully calibrated to the political goal you seek. Victory is not an end in itself and sometimes is counterproductive to the goals that you seek. I'm especially interested in hearing if you have comments about the role of media in conflict. Well, uh, we can all agree that the role of media is extremely important. Um, it's hard to come up with generalizations because media has played, let's say, since its inception with the uh, penny press in the late 19th century, it's played both positive and negative roles. Uh, if we look just at American history, it's clear that the yellow press forced President McKinley into an undesired war with Spain. The media, on the other hand, uh, played a more positive role in World War II and the run-up to it. I, I, I think historians are probably right in saying that the broadcasts of Edward R. Murrow from the roofs of uh, London uh, during the Blitz did a lot to bring American opinion around in support of the Allies and ending isolate or reducing isolationist uh, sentiment. Uh, the more recent problems with the media and war in the U.S. is media wants to cover things uh, well and um, close up. This means becoming embedded with American forces. And in doing so, American forces or the leadership uh, gets significant control over what the media sees and says. And it ends up representing a uh, official point of view rather than an independent one. Um, you have dual citizenship, uh, um, the U- with, with US and Germany. I'd be interested in your comments about the role of the German media uh, during World War II. Ah, well, uh, German media was tightly controlled by Goebbels. Uh, It was pure propaganda. Uh, It told very little that was true. Uh, Now, Western media was also... um, sharply, uh, not controlled, but limited in what it could say when it came to factual information. But American and British media were allowed to report what they wanted in terms of interpretation. So uh, the Germans were much closer to 
the Soviets, where media was centrally controlled in every respect. And of course, it was used to mobilize people and with, with considerable effectiveness. What about uh, the role of the German media in Hitler's ascent to power? Well, so if we look at the late years of the Weimar Republic, leading up to January 1933, when Hitler became chancellor, uh, almost all newspapers were owned either by political parties or by industrialists. Uh, each of them had a kind of party line, and everybody knew that. But because there were a number of papers, there was diverse and competing opinions on everything. Hitler, up to the point where he became chancellor, never received more than 32% of the vote. Right. And he never should have become chancellor. Um, now, once he became chancellor, he used... Um, his power to suppress the free press. Uh, within weeks, any number of journalists were arrested and killed. The Prussian police, the largest uh, armed force in, in, in Germany, was taken over and it didn't resist. And Hitler was then in a position to... Uh, make the press uh, simply a spokesman uh, for him. And a free press no longer existed. And once that happened, he was able uh, to mobilize more support. You've got some joint work with Philip Tatlock. Phil and I collaborated on a number of things. And my, my favorite paper with him is uh, on counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. So a counterfactual, for the sake of your audience, is a what if. Huh? Uh, so uh, I went outside today and uh, somebody on a bicycle ran into me. So I could say, well, had I gotten up 10 minutes later or had a second cup of coffee, this wouldn't have happened. Huh? That's a counterfactual. And of course, we have all kinds of political counterfactuals. Um, what if um, Gore, Al Gore, had asked the Supreme Court for a recount in all of Florida, not just the counties in which the Democrats thought they would emerge as victors? Uh, it looks like the Supreme Court would have allowed it. Uh, and had that happened, Gore and not Bush would have become president. And you can argue there would have been no invasion of Iraq. So that's a counterfactual argument. And one often uses counterfactual arguments to tease out what the actual causes were of events that happened. And Phil and I uh, were <coughs> struck by <coughs> the extent to which we could show that historians and international relations scholars uh, pretty much believed that the past 
was overdetermined. In other words, that what happened fundamentally had to happen, but that the future was wide open. This is, of course, a logical contradiction. <laughs> and we ran a set of, um, of, of experiments and surveys to show just how locked into determinism these groups were. Huh? Then we decided, could we change this by using counterfactuals? So we had, as you do in all good experiments, a control group and an experimental group. The um, control group was simply given uh, a questionnaire in which they had to assess the percentage of an event that had already occurred happening. The experimental group was given a vivid counterfactual account. And lo and behold, once exposed to counterfactual narratives, each of the ex uh, experimental groups saw the event as less determined. And the more vivid the scenario, the more willing they were to, to see it as open in its outcome. That's great. We are talking with Richard Ned Lebeau, Professor Emeritus, Professor Emeritus of International Political Theory at the Department of War Studies, King's College, London, about political science, especially national defense and deterrence. Last week, I was in Zoom attendance at a conference on how things are going in Ukraine. There's one, I gather, rather distinguished Ukrainian historian thundered at us that 2014, the annexation of Crimea, was a new Munich. I would argue that it's a misplaced use of the analogy. Uh, so let's come back to Munich. Um, by the time of Munich, Hitler could not be deterred. He wanted war. He went home from Munich on the train and told everybody around him how angry he was that Chamberlain had given in. He wanted to destroy Czechoslovakia by force. Hitler was going to war to conquer Europe and the world if he could do it. And there was no way threats were going to stop him. Now, deterrence might have worked uh, earlier on when Hitler occupied the Rhineland in 1936 or 35. And um, generals, German generals were horrified because they knew they were in no position to oppose France if it intervened. The fact that France didn't intervene undercut the generals and they lost uh, they lost their courage and willingness to oppose Hitler. The strategy of deterrence is based on the assumption that most aggressive behavior in international affairs is opportunity driven. That if an aggressive leader thinks he or these days she uh, can get away with some land grab or some other activity, they'll do it. It is accordingly essential to dissuade them of 
the belief that they can benefit by the use of force. Uh, to do this, you must do four things. You must define a commitment. In other words, draw a line in the sand saying, this is what we will not accept. Secondly, you need to communicate that commitment to would-be violators so they understand uh, what you're doing. Thirdly, you have to have the military capability to prevent them from doing it, or at least to punish them very severely if they do. And fourth, and often what is considered most difficult, is credibility. They must believe that you will oppose them or punish them if they act. So deterrence is not only based on the notion that we face opportunity-driven aggressors, but that by making threats and making those threats credible, we can manipulate the cost calculus of these leaders in a desired direction. There's all kinds of empirical evidence that it's as likely to provoke the behavior it seeks to prevent as not. The first assumption that I stipulated or that the Terence theorists assume is that aggression is opportunity driven. Um, in some cases it is, but in many uh, cases uh, and in the 20th century majority of cases, it's been need driven, not opportunity driven. Uh, leaders have faced a combination of domestic and foreign threats, which they believe can only be overcome through a successful challenge of a foreign adversary. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis is a case in point. Uh, Soviets and Americans had threatened each other and Cuba, in a way, was the, the culmination of, of this process. Uh, Khrushchev had behaved in ways in Berlin and elsewhere that made the Americans uh, convinced that uh, he was unhinged and might use force uh, to attack Berlin and had to be opposed. Uh, what Kennedy did to oppose him made Khrushchev insecure. Uh, the Americans prepared uh, to invade Cuba, not that they were going to, but they wanted to know the signal to the Soviets that they had the ability to do this. Uh, Kennedy publicly and privately put Khrushchev on notice that the Americans had the ability to destroy the Soviet Union, uh, sustaining relatively little damage um, themselves. And it turns out that the first generation of uh, Soviet uh, ICBMs uh, was more dangerous to them than to the U.S. It tended to explode unannounced on the launching pad. So the U.S. suddenly had a strategic advantage and with satellites pinpointed all the Soviet targets they would want to take out. So Khrushchev was desperate to um, offset American strategic advantage and to deter the Americans. Deterrence is practiced by both sides 
made each feel more insecure, convinced each that giving in in any way to the other would only invite new challenges, and that one had to behave in a tough and convincing way. Kennedy, to his credit, um, refused the request of the Joint Chiefs to commit American troops to the Bay of Pigs when the initial landing of Cuban refugees failed. The Joint Chiefs were also uh, very much in favor of an invasion. The president wanted to demonstrate resolve without using force. We now know that had the U.S. bombed Cuba and invaded, that the Soviets had a a combat brigade with uh, 42,000 troops armed with Luna missiles tipped with nuclear weapons with advanced permission to fire them against an American invasion fleet. Imagine where, where that would have gone. There's another incident um, that's documented in Taiwan. There were missiles on Taiwan aimed at Chinese mainland targets. The commander of the missile base received what looked like an attack order from SINCPAC, the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Area Command. And he was horrified when he received this because he knew this going to launch nuclear-tipped missiles at Chinese bases and possibly cities. So he, he didn't do it, um, and he instead cabled back and asked for clarification. <laughs> in the interim, one of the officers who was in command of three missiles insisted they had to be launched. So this commander sent over um, officers armed with weapons with instructions to shoot this American officer uh, if he tried to launch. And of course, as you know, he had to have an accomplice uh, to, to launch it. But he was persuaded to stand down. Three hours later, Sinkpak told the commander that whatever message he received, it was a mistake. Please, no launch of anything. Just remain calm. It takes us to the counterfactual of somebody other than Stanislav Yevgrafovich Petrov had been on the watch night, the watch desk, yeah. on the night of September 26, 1983. Who knows what would have happened? I, I love to tell people, no, all of us are here because a senior Soviet officer disregarded exactly. his orders one night. Let me leave you with one other counterfactual. Suppose Richard Nixon had won the election. I'm almost certain he would have. um, There wouldn't have been a Cuban Missile Crisis because he would have um, followed the pleas of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to invade Cuba when the Bay of Pigs was failing. Mm. So, so Cuba would have become an Afghanistan. What features of human cognition could contribute to the creating and sustaining conflicts and making them more damaging? Until quite recently, and still most economists uh, frame human beings as rational calculators, okay? who can s- collect information, 
weigh its validity, do a careful cost calculus of cost and gain before making a decision, whether it's an investment or whatever, a purchase. And um, cognitive psychology starts from the premise that this ain't so. That in the first instance, human beings are what are called cognitive misers. We only have so much in the way of cognitive resources, the same way we only have so much money. We have to be careful how we spend it. So people only make an investment in doing a serious search and evaluation in a decision that they consider very important and where they feel they don't know which way they should go. So a fairly limited list of cases. And in other decisions, we make use of a series of heuristics and biases that get us to a decision point quickly with little effort. And of course, sometimes they result in very bad decisions. But many cognitive psychologists argue that uh, while this is true, if we take a broader perspective on it, uh, it's offered evolutionary advantages to human beings. Uh, it's allowed quick decisions in times of threats. My word, there's a, a print from a panther. I better get the hell out of here. We see what we expect to see. We give credit to information that confirms our beliefs. We're equivalently resistant to information that challenges them. For our beliefs to change, they have to literally be overwhelmed uh, by discrepant information. And even then, there's often considerable resistance. In the international relations realm, wouldn't that mean that somebody who's looking, who's expecting a conflict will be looking much more for threats and tend to overlook signals from the other side that they want to uh, reach some kind of agreement? Yes. It's true, uh, but let's put it more broadly. So um, if you have a, a particular um, schema that you're using to understand the conflict or whatever you're looking at, uh, you, as you say, can readily misinterpret signals. Uh, secondly, you can interpret noise as signals and you can dismiss intended signals as noise. So communication becomes very difficult. This can be documented repeatedly in crises in the 20th century and decisions that led to wars that policymakers didn't want. We have been visiting with Richard Ned LeBeau, Professor Emeritus of International Political Theory at, in the Department of War Studies, King's College, London, about political science, especially national defense and deterrence. Next, next week, Jeff Humfeld will talk with Robert Devar about U.S. military uh, veterans who were promised citizenship for serving in the U.S. military and then later de deported after having been honorably discharged, some to countries where they did not know the language because they had been brought to the U.S. as infants. I'm Spencer Graves. Doug Samuelson has helped with this interview. Thank you for listening.